Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got just a couple more hours this week to go against the grain. And there is a lot to talk about. Uh, Joe Biden having a pretty embarrassing trip in South Korea so far. It's a rough start. Yes. Yeah. So security officers getting into a drunken fist fight uh, with a taxi driver or over a taxi. That seems like not the best showing. Um, but I think that's not the only uh, the only kind of spectacle that's happened so far on this trip. So we are going to talk about that. We're going to get into U.S. troops returning to the Horn of Africa. We'll talk about a crisis in the Jordanian government. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Not about the crisis, but about talking about it. Yeah. Jordan doesn't come up that often and no. probably should a lot more considering, you yes. know, they're actually a pretty important ally of yeah, ours. They really are. And uh, do, a lot of, do a lot of things for us on the quiet, I get the uh, impression. Yes. Uh, we will talk about hepatitis in kids, this mysterious uh, wave of infections that people just don't know where they're coming from yet. Uh, and we are going to talk a whole lot more. We're going to talk about uh, Oklahoma passing a bill that would bar almost all abortions starting at fertilization. So no time for you ladies to make a decision here. Uh, it is it is wild. It um, is it's, it's modeled on the Texas law that, uh, and, you know, instead of enabling the state to uh, regulate and implement it or to to enforce this law, it puts the power power in the hands of private citizens. But yeah, so these are all the laws that are on the books waiting for the day that Roe versus Wade is uh, overturned. And Herschel Walker, who we've talked about a lot, who's who's running for the Republican nomination for the U.S. Senate from the state of Georgia, said yesterday that he opposes abortion under any circumstances and that that is how he will vote when he is elected to the U.S. Senate. <sighs> yeah. Crazy. I just don't have words. Let's get on to other news. It's, oh, darn it. It turns out it's still bad, John. It's about rents. <laughs> we should have found some better stuff. Uh, <laughs> rents, guys, they're too high, huh? Sure are. And they're still going up. Although the rate of increase might be slowing. Maybe. So there's some very cold comfort for you. Uh, the national median rent was $1,800, $1,827 a month in April. Yeah. That is up 16.7% from a year ago. This is according to Realtor.com. Rent has been, of course, steadily increasing since early last year. In March, the year-on-year increase was more than 17%. So the good news is we've gone from 17% more to 16.7% more. You know, like many Americans uh, and like you, I rent. And uh, I was genuinely worried this year when my lease came due, Mm -hmm. uh, which was just a month ago. I I was afraid that my landlord was just going to just going to whack me yeah. with a gigantic increase, Mm -hmm. which he was perfectly within his legal rights to do. Mm -hmm. And with the the average rent going up, what was it, eight point something percent mm-hmm. we saw a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. I was very, very fortunate to get a five percent raise. But mm-hmm. but even five percent, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a, a chunk of money. That's also, like, is it, do you know people who are getting a 17 percent raises no. to compensate for this? Yeah, nope. exactly. So it's it is. It is untenable. It is untenable. That's right. If this continues, the report projects that the typical rent could be more than $2,000 a month in August. 
Right? You know, this happened in the UK. Mm-hmm. And look look at the situation now in the UK when you've got fully 25% of the British population living in public housing. Yeah. That's where we're headed. Yeah. Because they just simply can't afford to live anywhere else. No. Uh, according to the U.S. Census, to, to your point, the median annual income last year was around $67,500. Mm-hmm. T- after taxes, that's more like $41,000. Mm-hmm. So that means if you are smack in the middle of the earnings in our country, rent is already more than half your salary. Right. Which is going straight into someone else's pocket, that's which right. gets you absolutely nothing. That's right. And then, of course, that is just if you are right in the middle. Which means half of the country is is falling underneath that. Mm-hmm. And that means for half the country, you can't be, you know, you, you can't live certainly with what things cost now if you're spending yeah. half of your salary on rent. You know, it's a life that is very squeezed all the time with not a lot of opportunity to save for anything, either for fun or for for some kind of future mm-hmm. where you exist. You have a less precarious existence. Uh, so it's 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 terrible. And as this process is unfolding, whole blocks of neighborhoods are being bought up uh, by investment firms just yeah. as milking stations for people who can't afford to buy a home in this market, That's which right. is, you know, more and more people. It is, frankly, disgusting. And also, you know, these are just rent averages. And so for some apartments like studio apartments and in some places, uh, the increases have been much steeper. Studio apartments in New York, uh, rents for them are up 29 percent. Since last year in L.A., they're up 23 percent in Chicago. They're up 22 percent. That is a lot of money. And again, where where's the in, you know, where's the adjustment in income that people are getting? That doesn't exist. No. And, you know, right now we're actually it's like, oh, labor markets. It's time for some labor discipline in the United States, probably. So I just don't. this is it's not going to be a pretty picture. No. When no one in this country can afford rent and you have more and more people no. sort of cramming it. It's uh, it, it's so frustrating. I also just happened to come across as I was looking for uh, census data, happened to come across our official poverty rate in 2020, which is 11.4 percent. Is it that high? That's according to the census. Jeez, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's a lot. And also considering our poverty threshold, which I, I can't recall mm-hmm. off the top of my head. But every time you go and look at it, you go, wow. It's that low to define someone as living in poverty. Like I would I would really consider you to be living in poverty if you earn ten thousand dollars on top of whatever that number. I think it's something like. Honestly, I think it's something like twelve thousand dollars a year or it's it's something crazy. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, it's just it's an outrage. It's an outrage that that this situation exists in the country that has the most billionaires uh, in the world. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's wild. Wow. Yeah. Other news, uh, Project Veritas, who came up yesterday, they're the right wing sort of gotcha uh, video sting operation website. Uh, It says it has evidence that the FBI itself does indeed consider it to be a media organization and that therefore it should be protected from the kinds of searches and seizures that the Justice Department has recently subjected it to. Um, it says it was told by an FBI agent that the FBI officially called it a media outlet and that they have a copy mm-hmm. of a document from the FBI's computer system indicating a 2020 probe into Project Veritas was opened as a sensitive investigative matter 
on the grounds that it involved news media. And this is important because, you know, what, what's happening in the course of this uh, investigation that was undertaken into Project Veritas, where uh, they the uh, Justice Department um, pressured Microsoft, subpoenaed Microsoft to give them emails from nine different accounts, uh, raided founder James O'Keefe's apartment, confiscated his phones. They've basically been saying, well, we can do this because you're not doing journalism. Mm-hmm. But if you have, mm-hmm. if this documentation exists, I mean, it's it's Project Veritas saying it has it, right? Um, But yeah, if that does exist, there goes the justification, as you say. And, you know, the thing with Project Veritas, I I, I disagree with 99% of what they do. Mm -hmm. To me, this gotcha journalism, it's just not fair, Mm -hmm. but it's still journalism. Mm -hmm. And the government, the Justice Department over the years has consistently underestimated uh, their resolve. The resolve of uh, Project Veritas. These mm-hmm. guys are smarter and tougher and more wily than the Justice Department has given them credit for being over the years. Mm-hmm. So if they say that they have this document, I believe them. Mm-hmm. I think they have the document. And a lot of this is over, um, you know, the uh, Ashley Biden's diary. Yes. Right. Which That's was this whole thing stole, started. Yeah, it was stolen from her, a, a place that she had moved out of, right? She moved out of an apartment or a house, she left, moved her, out left her diary a, behind. Right. She left, she moved into a friend's house and left all of her stuff with a friend. And then the friend, I don't know, got rid of it, put it in a storage unit. I don't Somehow, know. Somehow someone else, Project Veritas says they got it from someone else. The Justice Department is sort of implying that Project Veritas was directly involved in in getting mm. the diary. Project Veritas is saying someone gave us this like we we got our hands on this. And if you're going to try and prosecute any journalist who ends up with stolen information, then you're going to have to put they said you're going to have to incarcerate everyone who works at The Washington Post. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the ACLU uh, has come out and said, you know, basically what you said, they said we we deplore Project Veritas's deception. Uh, we don't have a full picture of the government's investigation, but we're concerned. That the, mm-hmm. the precedent set by this case could have consequences for press freedom. So yeah. we'll, we'll see. This might uh, it has the potential to tip the scales, perhaps, for Project Veritas in, in fighting um, these, you know, if I, if resisting the way that they were treated, yes. <laughs> getting their yes. things back. Yeah. Let me interrupt you for one second, too. Please. Um, so I, I looked up the, the poverty line and much to my shock uh, for a single person. The poverty level is $12,760. Like a steel trap, John. Shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shocking. Yeah. I mean, even if I lived in my car, I would need more than $12,760 a year to, to you know, live, to so feed myself. So when we look at these poverty, and yeah, look at what, what is it for a family? Something a, like $18,000, 20? No, for two adults and two children, it's $43,500. Yeah, that's a little better. But still. Yeah. I mean. That's it's, not you couldn't pay rent in Washington, D.C. on that salary. It'd be it'd be pretty tough for two people oh yeah. and two children, like for a family. Yeah, no, you couldn't do yeah. it. And so whenever we are looking at these poverty figures, that's what's to bear in mind. There are a lot of people who are living uh, lives that are pretty uncomfortable and pretty uh, yes. vulnerable who are not included in these statistics about what amazing. our actual poverty rate is. Just amazing. Yeah. Also in the news today is Elon Musk. Again. Who has been. I mean, it's like, what else? What else needs to come down the pipeline for Musk? Now it's an accusation of sexual misconduct. He's denying these accusations strenuously. Uh, they come out of a report by Insider, which used to be Business Insider. Yep. It says it's learned that Elon Musk exposed himself to a flight attendant and propositioned her in 2016 and that SpaceX in 2018 paid $250,000 to settle the claim. You know, I've never understood the uh, 
the compulsion that some people have to expose themselves. Well, I will say we don't know if he did it. No. He said, we don't know if, said we, yeah. if he did it. Although I'm going to say, and this is just me, if I had the kind of money that Elon Musk has and somebody sued me, rather than just settle it to make it go away, I would fight and fight and fight and drag it out for years and make it cost millions and millions I feel like of dollars. I saw someone, I feel like I saw someone pointing out online earlier today as I was looking into this that Elon has a history of saying, Never fight, never fight a claim, just settle and move on with your life. Really? Not saying it about himself, but right, like a sort of business a advice. Yeah, I have seen, look, I'm saying I saw, this is a thing I saw on the internet. <laughs> so <laughs> I am not, maybe it is not true, guys. It's just a tidbit. I can tell you more that is true. We have uh, the information that Insider published comes from a friend of the alleged victim. Mm-hmm who Insider says shared a bunch of documentation with them, including a statement that she made on behalf of her friend. And basically, like, this woman's working as a flight attendant. She declined Elon Musk's advances and then thought that she was being punished for it. She didn't get jobs. She didn't get, you know, her her work was affected. Um, Elon Musk has said it's all made up, and Mm. he has challenged the accuser to uh, describe some part of his body not known to the public to prove her claims. Not saying, like, Tell everybody what my penis looks like, right. but he, you know, is there? He said scars, tattoos, whatever. Can you can you say anything about me that like everybody on earth hasn't seen? This woman has not come out and said who she is anyway. She's somebody counting her two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, somebody has also said that in, if it was in California, she probably signed a non disclosure agreement. Oh, yes, who knows? Uh, there's also been some intrigue in the timeline of the accusations. Elon Musk and his supporters are saying the insider hit piece came out right after Elon Musk said he was going to vote Republican. Right. So it's like Musk yesterday says, expect the attacks, the political attacks on me to increase. I saw the tweet when he put it out. I forget if it, yeah. it was like late Wednesday or yesterday. When he, when yeah. I saw it. Okay, whatever. Like, like nobody cares how you vote. And buddy. then says Democrats used to be the kind, the party of kindness and now they're the party right. of divisiveness. I'm going to vote Republican. And then what do you know? Here's the first hit piece whipped up after that. Insider says they reached out to Elon for comment Wednesday morning which would mean he was aware of the story when he said political attacks on me will increase and then said, now I'm voting Republican. He's a drama queen. Yeah. Who knows if the misconduct occurred or not in terms of the timeline of seeking comment? You know, it's insider's word against his. But so there you have it. Yes. Accused of maybe accused of uh, sexual misconduct, maybe paid the settlement. SpaceX is not commenting. Um, There we go. And there are a couple of Project Veritas uh, videos going around uh, of Twitter employees, uh, supposedly. One where, one where, like, an engineer just keeps talking about how everyone at Twitter are commies. They went commie. Yeah, full I, commie I looked in at a those way. Awful I, think, videos. I don't really know if you understand. They, they just, went full commie, he yeah. says. Yeah. And another Doesn't with uh, someone who, you know, does kind of make fun of Elon Musk for having Asperger's, which isn't very nice, no. and uh, says, you know, just sort of talks about. Uh, Twitter's uh, attempt to find and define misinformation and how ultimately it's, I mean, there's, you said one thing that I think is true that he says, it's just all about money, right? It's just all about money for everybody. It's about money for Elon Musk. It's about money for the Twitter executives who are there now. The whole deal, the whole thing is all about money more than, more than ideology or censorship or anything else. So 
There you go. Another day, another Elon Musk story. Maybe we'll get a week without him in that the news cycle nice. next week. Well, we'll see. I told you I, I met Elon Musk once. We had drinks at the Hey Adams Hotel, just mm. four of us. Could not have been any lovelier. But mm. this was 2008 before he became a you know household name. And uh, he just seems to have become a jerk over the years. I don't know. Yeah. Just me. You know. Or maybe it was always there and he was just being nice to you that one Could time. Could be. Who knows? Could be. Well, we could speculate as to his true personality forever, John, but that would probably be pretty dull. So let's take a break here and we'll come back with our first guest in just a second. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Russian Defense Ministry said today that it would heighten its defenses along the Finnish border in light of the decision by Finland and Sweden to apply for membership in NATO. Turkey, meanwhile, said that it was opposed to adding the two Nordic countries to NATO without promises that Sweden would send a host of Turkish and Kurdish dissidents back to Turkey to stand trial, something that Sweden promised it would never do. Meanwhile, President Biden is in South Korea on the first leg of his Asia trip. He had a rough start in Seoul today when two Secret Service agents were expelled after being arrested following a drunken argument the night before. And Biden arrived to news that his approval rating has dropped to only 39 percent. We're joined by Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and international security analyst. Welcome back, Mark. John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Well, we're glad you're here. Let's talk about Finland and Sweden for a minute. Looking at North Macedonia's accession to NATO having taken 25 years, uh, there's no reason to believe that Finland and Sweden can join quickly so long as Turkey is objecting to them. First, do you see Sweden bowing to Turkey and returning dissidents, many of whom are now Swedish citizens? Uh, and second, do you see Turkey lifting its objections and allowing two new NATO members in the near future? Okay, well, first of all, there is going to be a huge amount of pressure uh, coming from the United States and other um, top NATO members like um, the United Kingdom, uh, even perhaps Germany and France in this regard, to get Finland and Sweden into NATO as soon as possible, meaning by the end of the year, um, primarily as a as a re- rhetorical um, blow back against uh, Russia's intervention in Ukraine. They want to claim that that uh, the Russian president has essentially lost the goal of preventing. NATO expansion by expanding NATO to Russia's north uh, rather than at least immediately to the west. And um, Finland and Sweden have long been de facto NATO members, right? They all possess uh, European and U.S. uh, gear uh, of NATO standard equipment. They're already compatible. They've been doing drills and exercises 
with NATO uh, working on interoperability, uh, they're they're already set to go. Uh, what what has long been the hindrance is uh, political sentiment in both countries, which has radically shifted as a result of the hysteria over Russia's intervention in Ukraine, and they want to take advantage of this as well. There might be the fear that if the conflict ends, then the uh, political sentiment in the countries might fade. So they want to get this through now. So despite Erdogan being Erdogan, Erdogan's objections to Finland and Sweden have nothing to do with Russia whatsoever. He's simply seeing an opportunity for leverage to make demands of the rest of the uh, NATO partners that he has – to say the least, very fractious relations. Uh, so while uh, I do not see that that Sweden would give up uh, the Kurds it has accepted for political asylum, uh, that that would probably be seen as as unacceptable by Swedish the Swedish population. But um, I think that they will be trying to make a deal. They they might come around to recognizing the PKK PKK as a terrorist organization, mm-hmm. um, which is one of uh, Turkey's key demands, and removing the trade restrictions, as well as the U.S. might be working out some type of deal with Turkey behind the scenes on the F-16 deal and parts that it wants, uh, as well as removing uh, sanctions over Turkey's purchase of the S-400. So I, I think the U.S. will be wheeling and dealing to to get everyone to come to a compromise that will satisfy Erdogan's ego and not hurt Sweden's pride so much while still getting Sweden and Finland into NATO as quick as possible before the door closes and, and the message of, of a victory over Russia in this sense is set. I would I I would agree with everything that you said. I, whether whether uh, Erdogan, but let me rephrase that. This is not at all about Russia for Erdogan. I, I really yeah. believe yes. that's true. Not at all. He sees this as an opportunity to get something, something that he wants. Yes, and uh, that's Erdogan. He's a cutting beast. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's really what it comes down to. Uh, Staying on on the Russia-Ukraine issue, Mark, Michelle and I have been following a journalist on Twitter who recently returned from Ukraine and who reported that this international legion uh, made up of Westerners uh, who who have gone to Ukraine to fight for all intents and purposes, it, it just doesn't exist. Uh, my Ukrainian friends are furious that I would even say something like that. Uh, and I, I got it in spades last night in a phone call that I had with a friend of mine. But aside from a photo of Malcolm Nance on the front page of the New York Times <laughs> holding a gun that has no magazine in it, um, I honestly see no evidence that there are fighting units made up of Westerners in Ukraine. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, I, I, I would have to agree. I have not seen any evidence of that. There is evidence of small units of Western mercenaries uh, scattered around in some other Ukrainian forces. But these are not large in number. Um, and they, um, you know, there's there's not any sign of any legion as a substantial uh, foreign unit. I've heard talk that there is a French unit and an English-speaking unit. Right. But nowhere have I seen that they were actually engaged in combat. And everything we've heard from a lot of the Western mercenaries who have already fled back 
uh, to uh, their respective countries because of the conditions, the conditions that the that the uh, Ukrainian regime in Kiev is treating them with, um, of of the conditions of the war, which was evidently a lot more than a lot of them expected because of the misrepresentation of the state of the conflict in the Western media and and so on. Uh, I, everything they say is that a majority of the Western adventurers slash mercenaries has already left. They've already packed up and gone home. That Those makes that sense could. to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, you know, we're we're not reading, even in the pro-Ukraine mainstream U.S. media, any stories, and I mean not a single one, saying, you know what, there was this battle in this town in eastern Ukraine and the Ukrainians were bogged down and then this unit of Americans and British showed up and there was a fire. We're not seeing any of that. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is kind of ridiculous. It was obviously for political slash propaganda value. Small units of of scattered different language speaking yeah. Westerners yeah. with mixed military experience right. thrown into uh, a, you know, cooperation with a Kiev regime military where the number of English speakers in the military is very light and them dealing with equipment that you know, despite the the recent influx of Western arms, is still mostly of Soviet build, Soviet era, right. Soviet build. Right? They 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 can't form any any type of uh, cohesive uh, force with any type of firepower, or anything like that. They're they're individual adventures. They're mostly there for glory and and miss understandings of the situation there. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm Nance is the perfect example of someone who is there simply to promote his own brand. Yes. Right. We used to call them um, at the CIA, we used to call them glory hounds. You know, they, yeah, they well, feel they've missed out on something in life and they want a little glory that they can, they can tell their children and grandchildren about. And so why not, why not go to Ukraine where you can, you can get this gun with no bullets and a cool uniform and be on the border of Poland and then go back home after a little while and tell these great stories about what a hero you were. You know, my friend last night, Mark was telling me, well, what about the Japanese guy? And what about the Sri Lankan guy? They, they could, the, the, the fact that you're pointing out, Guys, individual like, yeah. guys, and and there was yeah, something right. there was something in the Guardian that was very interesting to me too. It was an interview that Malcolm Nance gave to this friend of his who happens to be a journalist at the Guardian, and he was saying that as soon as the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, that he went on the Ukrainian embassy's website here in Washington, and uh, they they had mentioned this international whatever it's called, and so he applied. And then he never heard anything. So a few days later, he went back online and he applied again and he didn't hear anything again. So he started calling the embassy and nobody ever answers the phone at the embassy. So he got in the car and he drove over to the embassy and knocked on the door. And he said, look, I'm trying to volunteer, but nobody's answering my applications and nobody's answering the phone. OK, what? He's the only person who doesn't have his application responded to. No, they don't answer anybody's application. So how serious no, of an really, organization can this be? Yeah, they've really dialed down on that. It was done initially to get a few hundred of them there for the propaganda yes. value of. But 
if they didn't already understand how ineffective they would actually be, which I think they must have, they quickly uh, discovered it. And the number of them that, uh, that you know, at the first uh, sign of, of Russian uh, cruise missile caliber cruise missiles hitting barracks right. and artillery shelling that, that you know, uh, that, that didn't already run home, that's the scattering that's left. And of those that weren't smart enough to already leave, well, and, and that survived this – then um, I'm sure they'll have a few stories to tell their grandkids. That's I, for sure. I don't want to embarrass the friend that I was talking to last night, but she mentioned that that several of these foreign fighters, for lack of a better term, I don't know what else to call them. Several of these foreign fighters um, have been calling her and telling her how things are going. And I said, calling you from what? From a cell phone? And she said, yeah, from a cell phone. I said, OK, then that proves to me that they're nowhere near combat. Because if they were calling you from a cell phone, they would have a Russian cruise missile up their rear ends in the next five minutes. But because they're calling you from Poland or from the Polish border, the Russians aren't going to waste their time and their missiles to lock in on their on their signal from their phone and fire a missile. Okay. Yeah, I, I I think some of them might still be in Ukraine, in in Lvov in Western sure. Ukraine, or maybe even in Kiev doing the press circuit, right. being trotted out as as the token Japanese or as the token Indonesian, like you said, uh, because they're still useful uh, that way. We're also hearing reports, Mark, that President Zelensky may not actually be in military charge in Ukraine, even if he is the f- the public face in this fight against the Russians. What we're hearing is that the real decisions behind the scenes are being made by the oligarchs who have long been accused of being the powers behind the scenes. Is there any truth to this or is Zelensky in charge? What are you hearing? Yeah, I I don't think that uh, the oligarchs are so much in charge, you know, whether we're talking Kolomoisky, Akhmetov or or any of the others are really in charge of this military operation. But I don't think that Zelensky is either. As much as anyone is in charge of the regime in Kiev military wise, particularly the intelligence uh, aspect of it that, you know, the uh, SBU, that would be the United States and the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Everything I hear is coming about a conflict between what the Ukrainian general staff should be done and what the U.S. and U.K. military advisors should be done. And and invariably, the, the decision is, is towards the U.S. and U.K. advisors, if there's even a decision capable at all. And the ill-fated attempt to retake Snake Island mm-hmm. right before Russia's victory day as a way to uh, embarrass Putin, um, you know, right before the biggest Russian national holiday of the year is a prime example of that. It held no strategic value. Even if they had managed, they couldn't have to take it. They couldn't have held it. It was surely for the info war, which the amount of equipment they wasted because Russian intelligence found out about it, laid an ambush, fired a whole lot of onyx missiles at the incoming. And uh, it, in total, I mean, Ukraine, uh, the Kiev regime lost an amount of equipment and men that they really couldn't afford. We're talking uh, 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 three uh, 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 um, fighter 
uh, aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, three fighter bombers, one fighter aircraft, thirty um, some drones, including nine by Raptors, three missile boats. They they lost so much uh, that they really couldn't afford to lose, and as well as fifty people and the uh, deputy commander for aviation of the Ukrainian Navy, who was leading from the front. It was a it was a massacre, and they really tried to cover it up. Um, you know how much they lost uh, in this ill-fated adventure, and that that shows who's really in charge of the military there, such as it is. However, when you get out to the front in the Donbass, um, I think it's more the nationalists that are running things, uh-huh. uh, the battalions. That makes um, sense to um, me. Both as discrete units and within uh the, the military units uh the ex quote unquote members of the battalions the ultra nationalists are at this point all spread throughout the military and so forth and and uh, i think there has always been a degree of uh, the, the the you know the far right, the ultra nationalists, the the neo Nazis, whatever you want to call them, they do what they want, and then Zelensky uh, tries to uh, play along as if uh, he's in charge of them and mm-hmm. and and sit and doing what they wanted to do after all. And uh, there's every indication that actually Azov was already surrendering in Azov stall in Mariupol hours before. The, the order came from Kiev that their combat mission was accomplished and they should be evacuated, mm-hmm. meaning surrender to Russian and Donbass allied forces. I want to ask you a question about President Biden's uh, trip. He arrived in South Korea this morning um, and made a couple of gaffes. He called the South <laughs> Korean president by the wrong name. Uh and he must have been tired from his flight. I'll, I'll give him that. He's an I old think, man. You know, I think to be fair to Joe Biden, who has flubbed a bunch of stuff this week, but it was he he'd said the right name a couple of times and then he said the wrong name at the yeah, end. Yeah. So maybe he ad libbed the I wrong actually, name. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I, I went back through it and it wasn't and, and they weren't offended. Yeah. And it didn't even appear in the South Korean media. Yeah. Um, he arrived just as two Secret Service agents were being expelled from the country after getting into this drunken standoff. Now, now one of the, that is that's bad. Yeah, it's not as bad as the Secret Service guys not paying their prostitutes in Colombia right. when yeah. George <laughs> W. Bush that. was yeah. president. Uh, it's not as bad, also, as apparently being uh, infiltrated by a couple of guys. Uh, you want to? I don't know. Pakistani bo- guys that yeah uh, bought him some presents and exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's not making the Secret Service look really good. It's right not. Now. You know, one of the interesting things about this. They they were drunk and they got into a dispute with a cab driver. And the initial report said that they fought the cab driver. They didn't fight the cab driver. South Korea has this thing in the police departments where if it's a low level disagreement between people, you call the police. And instead of the police sending police officers, they send a mediator. Hmm. Yeah. To try to work out the problem. How nice. <laughs> Isn't that great? So the mediator came. I I think that would work in the U.S. I don't think it would. And it didn't work in South (laughs) Korea last night because what happened was they send the the mediator and these two guys cop an attitude with the mediator. And one of them was like, "Okay, you know, sorry, I'm just going to walk away. And the other's like, no, what are you going to do about it? And so they arrested the one and let the other one go. And then when they called the embassy, the embassy said, you guys have to go right now. Yeah. Uh, they were part of the logistics team. So that's a long way of, of getting to my question. It, 
what does Biden need to accomplish on this visit to South Korea, which is, I think, his first visit to South Korea since becoming president? Um, And is this weird start going to be a problem for him? Okay, so uh, first of all, there's a new South Korean president, right. uh, so that that's important right there, right. Yoon. Uh, so establish relations there, uh, and Biden has a long list on this trip of things that that Asia, which is intended to be the main pivot of the U.S. Uh, since the beginning of the Obama administration, the U.S. keeps getting sidetracked in other parts of the world. Uh, first of all, they want to shore up the sanctions regime against Russia mm-hmm. uh, because. I mean, you try to find a Russian who doesn't have a Samsung appliance in their household. And I mean, it's not real popular in the U.S., but their 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 stuff is I mean, I've, I've got several of them. I'm sitting wow. right in front of wow. right now <laughs> in, in my house. So uh, and there's a lot of business between Russia and South Korea. So uh, a lot of South Korean businesses are not really happy uh, with the sanctions. Um, uh, another thing is that South Korea and Japan have had a big falling out in uh, the recent months, yes. mostly fought through the media, but uh, over history, over trade. Um, and and Biden is supposed to come in and, and um, uh, settle things between the two of them, particularly with the new uh, South Korean president gives him an opportunity. To. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of bad blood in historically between South Korea and Japan, and it's primarily their hub and spoke relationships with the United States that keep them together and nothing more. Um, there's the threat of North Korea supposedly either launching a, a new intercontinental ballistic missile or conducting a nuclear test when Joe Biden is there. Supposedly, there are signs of this. I'm a little skeptical of that because those are two completely different things. Either your intelligence is terrible. <laughs> I mean, how could you confuse? A, I, don't, I don't really know. So uh, then North Korea may do something while Joe Biden is there. I don't know. Um, the U.S. has been conducting a lot of military exercises with South Korea, which makes North Korea very unhappy because they feel very threatened by it. And they usually do something after that happens. But they've never done something before when a U.S. president was visiting. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Another thing is semiconductors. The U.S. is having yes. – the whole world is having a big shortage of semiconductors. Yes. Especially as the U.S. tries to wean itself completely away from China on this. Uh, And there's a global shortage of semiconductors right now. One, because of the pandemic uh, that had production down and now production needs to ramp up again. We're still coming out of that. uh, two, as the U.S. tries to shift away from China, uh, they, they, they want to get more from um, uh, South Korea. They want to become a big partner with that. Three, they want to deny – they want to make sure as part of the sanctions that South Korea is on board with the sanctions against selling semiconductors to Russia because the U.S. is trying to um, uh, push Russia out of the global semiconductor market, um, which is, is one of the things that Russia uh, economically uh is does not have a very advanced semiconductor industry themselves it's very nascent uh so um that is probably one of the more serious of the u.s sanctions and uh the u.s wants to make sure that south korea is still on board with that and last the u.s uh, biden is trying to push the new trade agreement after 
Trump tanked the Trans-Pacific Partnership for the United States yeah. in a big way. They're trying to book a new uh, uh, international framework to hook all the countries into their their economic system as as an anti-China measure. And this is the international um, uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework. They're trying to drag India into this. Whenever they mention Indo-Pacific, that's their their new geopolitical yes. buzzword. It is to drag to drag India into it. And, you know, this is primarily an anti-China thing. And I don't know if it's working out because even before uh, Biden arrived, the South Korean president was very uh, keen to say uh, that, uh, you know, they they are not on board with trying to cut China out of the uh, global supply chain um, and that, um, that uh, th- that's not what they are about. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not so sure if China buys that, but they have a, also have a very strong economic relationship with China and they're not ready to see that sacrificed on the altar of, of the U.S.'s uh, economic uh, crusade, uh, particularly when because of that, they've already basically lost Russia as an economic partner yeah. in a whole range of areas. Well, thank you for that insight, Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and international security analyst, and he joined us from Moscow. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are talking now about some of the crises the Horn of Africa faces right now and whether the redeployment of U.S. troops is going to help any of them at all. (laughs) As we spoke about earlier this week, Joe Biden reversed Trump era troop withdrawals. And now we're going to send several hundred U.S. troops. I believe the quoted figure is fewer than 500 back to Somalia with the stated mission of training Somali troops and providing intelligence for their operations against al-Shabaab and other terrorist groups. Uh, The return will will mean, again, the more or less permanent U.S. troop presence in Somalia. Joining us to talk about what this will do to Somalia and the region and what other uh, political, economic and and humanitarian issues are at play is Netfa Freeman. He's events coordinator and a policy analyst at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's also an organizer in Pan-African Community Action. That's PACA. Thank you for joining us, Nepha. Thank you for having me. I have to uh, do a little, uh, maybe a disclaimer, so to speak. So I'm not speaking on behalf of the Institute for Policy Studies. That's where I am. But more so on the Black Alliance for Peace. Okay. They are Project U.S. of Africa. Fantastic. And I know you also co-host the radio show and podcast Voices with Vision. So there's lots of places to find you and your uh, analysis. So talk to us about, 
you know, Joe Biden is sending these troops back to the Horn of Africa at a time of great tension in the region, right? You have Ethiopia still at war. Uh, There's a growing threat of famine that covers a number of countries. Sudan remains politically, economically, and, and socially precarious. And so, you know, Joe Biden is sending these troops to Somalia to supposedly, you know, have a stabilizing effect uh, in that country. And I wonder what you think the the effect of U.S. troops in, in Somalia and, you know, in Africa in general usually is. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you said the the, um, the adjective or the adverb supposedly. Yeah. Because I think that, you know, the, the U.S. government and the, and the, uh, the, the advisors and whatnot are, are not less intelligent than we are. They know that the presence of the United States there and over the decades and even the U.S. policy in Africa is not stabilizing anything. Mm-hmm. So what it really means is that they want, you know, unfettered access to the resources. Right now we're living in an age where the military industrial complex is really driving a lot of things into the, to the secondary concern or fourth or third or fourth of, of people anywhere, humanity anywhere, even domestically or especially, you know, even domestically. So I think this, what's going to happen is going to have a, um, a destabilizing effect. Mm-hmm. I think this is where the West gets most of its uh, ability to exploit the continent of Africa is where Africa is destabilized. It makes it, 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 it assures that the emergence or the predominance or the preeminence of, of more reactionary dispositions, even in the forces, even among the forces they claim to be fighting. So Al-Shabaab, if we remember, and that's what they're supposed to be you know, countering, emerged or even became as, as a result of the United States' uh, invasion and or, or overthrow. Mm-hmm. The Islamic Islamic court that was ruling, giving some semblance of stability to Somalia, and then now uh, the El Shabaab, we can say definitely say that it's not it's not a revolutionary force. It's definitely causing violence, and everything, but this and, and destruction and terrorist acts. But so is the could be said that the U.S. drone strikes and the the operate counterterrorism operations are killing people and even driving people to have more sometimes sympathy with or at least feel like they have no other choice but to join al-shabaab or mm-hmm. like that and al-shabaab wasn't originally affiliated with al-qaeda but now they you know they're if they as they try to advance their own you know their own uh struggles and 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 influence then they make relationships with whoever they can to counter whoever they see as their enemy mm-hmm. now the u.s has supported um, a is supporting this new president that was elected in really strange things where they have this parliament that elects the president and the people have no say in the parliament. It's a, it's a it's a it's a an agreement between the different uh, clans and, and whatnot that that the, or the elite rather in mm-hmm. in Somalia, Hussein Sheikh Mohammed. Um, who used to be the president before is now, uh, you know, they're supporting that. Mm-hmm. The person who's advisor, Musa uh, Haji Mohammed, is, is a person who was seen as the United Nations monitoring group is accused of smuggling weapons to al-Shabaab. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're supposed to be helping. So this, these aren't things that can really bring any kind of uh, you know, stability mm-hmm. the, to, the, to the region. And I'll just say this last part. And one of the things that the con- U.S. is concerned with, and we, have to, we can see it in other places, in, like, for example, the example of Mali. Mm-hmm. Right now, which they have no control and French has lost control. The Mali is doing... Uh, uh, collaborations with Russia, or particularly, I say more specifically, the Wagner Group, which is a, a army group and a military, a private military corporation in 
in Mali that they say is having more uh, effective countering of terrorism there. Mm-hmm. They don't want that kind of relationship. They want to circumvent any or, or count, head off at the past any inclinations that African countries might have to, to actually work with someone else that's not the West to counter the terrorism. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about that, but I, I want to come back to this uh, idea of what, what exactly is destabilizing, because this line in a Wall Street Journal opinion piece really jumped out to me. And it's it's about the U.S. redeploying troops to Somalia. Uh, and the piece says the U.S. doesn't have the power to drive events in Somalia or micromanage the deeply troubled country. But Washington needs to find a path between abandoning and enabling the central government. One option is for diplomats to look beyond the capital and elevate the country's federal member states. And so, of course, this made me think of Tigray in Ethiopia. Uh, And I I wonder if you could just talk about U.S. political policy there and what happens if the U.S., if American diplomats sort of start picking and choosing which elements of government they'll deal with in a given country, because that sounds pretty destabilizing to me also. It is. And I think it will also be very confusing if we don't come. I have to come at things from I'm a Pan-Africanist. Right? Mm-hmm. So we see, you know, the unity of Africa and the uh, an establishment of a socialist uh, structure for the continent of Africa is benefiting the people. And we know that Western colonialism is why the continent is in the position it is. Mm-hmm. People should refer to Walter Rodney's work, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. The Africa is not just some backwards thing. But if we keep uh if we keep uh seeing as central or the basis the the premise that the US is you know and and the western forces are there to do some kind of good and it's a paternalistic per, uh perspective we have to abandon that and it also is doesn't do good for the self determination the right of self determination and respect that african people can solve our own problems and we need to do and not deferring to this comprador class that they prop up so the so really we have to not we have to what it does is it undermines continental unity. The policies undermine continental unity. They're meant to do that. Mm-hmm. Know that the CIA and other countries have had documents that 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 are not that look don't look favorably uh, to, of the continental unity towards self determination and socialism. They're trying again. We know they're trying to counter China and Russia influence in it. They want access to Africa's raw materials and the markets. You know, uh, the, so that they can. Uh, send the finished goods to to the continent and make them, you know, subservient to the the neoliberal paradigm that's dominating the world. And also, we cannot underestimate the fact that there's a military-industrial complex that needs to feed. It's a monster, and and this is what we can see it all over the world. Every all the policies that the U.S. is doing, shoveling money to the military, nothing is about kind of peace and reconciliation or how to. They don't even talk about the word peace. If they do, you know, mm-hmm. in passing, and it's very superficial. But everything is a military solution because they have to feed the military-industrial complex, and that's what we're seeing in the Horn of Africa in particular. Because we know, no, let's not let's remember there was a peace accord that. The uh, that was brokered, uh, led by Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. It included Eritrea and Somalia. They don't want that kind of unity, uh, and so they they have to embark on the, the policies that they that they do. Mm-hmm. Well, let me talk. Uh, speaking of you know relationships between African countries and countries other than the United States and. Uh, uh, pan-African sort of peace, uh, I wanted to get an update on the state of the conflict in Ethiopia and then also ask, you know, I see that China has appointed a special envoy for the Horn of Africa, uh, uh, Shui Bing, 
and plans to hold a peace conference for the entire Horn soon. And I wonder how significant this is and whether uh, these countries take China seriously as a potential peace broker. Oh, well, I don't I can't be in the hands of the leaders, but I can't Mm -hmm. imagine that they wouldn't take China seriously. I mean, why is China? Why would China be any less? Uh, effective at being a peace broker than these other the the other world powers that bring nothing but death and destruction and aren't even interested in peace. Mm-hmm. China does have significant interests on the continent of Africa. So even if we're not talking about some you know altruistic, but I I think let me just put the China definitely demonstrates not just China but other all the countries that are in the global south or just that are anti Western Europe at least demonstrate much more of a regard or willingness to to have establish peace uh, in the world than the West does, mm-hmm. and they demonstrate. And so, all of their uh, their dealings, not more, most of the dealings, uh, you know, it's pretty much overwhelming, are about economic, you know, their trade, there's infrastructure buildings, and all that. People can argue that China's not our friend, or. Mm-hmm not our friend and all that kind of the people in the West argue that because we're bombarded with that kind of, but as a, as a, for me or even anyone who really understands the class nature of this is let's flip side. So maybe let's say China's not our friend, mm-hmm. but we don't want to accept the opposite and the, and people outside of the country, the leaders that you're asking me about what they, what they regard, mm-hmm. they know China's not necessarily their enemy. That's the question. Should we be, is China our enemy? No, China's not, not only is China not the enemy, uh, or so less, you know, not the enemy of the Western countries, and has some in- and doesn't definitely have an interest in brokering peace. And if they can do it, they have much more credibility. China is not even the enemy of working class people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, the, the primary enemy of working class people, and particularly black and brown, non-white people in the United States, is the U.S. government and the elite and the oligarchy that rules the United States. They're the ones that mass incarcerate us and and and, and deny us access to human basic human needs and put it as secondary or third or fourth over shoveling money to a war in Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. China's not doing any of those things, and I think the other rest of the world. And, and we have to remember that the rest of the world they didn't want us to know the UN votes that were to condemn Russia. Um, were not met favorably with in terms of African countries or even the non-Western world. Mm-hmm. I have to believe every, the whole world is around them, behind them, but most of the African countries abstained. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, maybe Eritrea and Zimbabwe voted against it, but they abstained because they know the comp- there's complications to that. It's mm-hmm. not just... You know, anyway, Mm -hmm. I want to ask about, uh, you know, speaking again of destabilization, uh, I'm seeing reports that the U.S. is apparently courting Somaliland, hoping to be able to use one of its ports and airfields as an alternative to the base that it already has in Djibouti. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, what what's the impact? What what would you predict if uh, this sort of thing becomes more popular and the U.S. develops more bases there? And also, you know, what is the state of I suppose, pan-African discussion or political solidarity when it comes to, you know, one country considering letting the U.S. form a permanent military presence on its soil. Is there, uh, you know, does there exist right now a, a mechanism for sort of the, the rest of the continent to really weigh in and have a say on this kind of these kinds of decisions? <laughs> this is an excellent question. It's very complicated now. Right. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
what is important? Well, how? Wow. So we know, you know, this, what's happening, what they're doing, the moves they're making to Mali land is are emblematic, emblematic of their of their interests. You know, being able to establish and and have uh, influence over the 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 choke points basically, and from the, the connect the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, and that's their those kind of things are their main you know concern, not mm-hmm. concern of the people. And as you said, this is a, a you know this even this. Uh, this agreement even had uh, General Townsend of uh, of Africom come down and and talk about you know mm-hmm. with Somaliland. These things, they, it's all about. So with the state of Somalia and Somaliland, it can only create complications. But of course, the U.S. and the West, uh, uh, particularly the U.S. Uh, has relationships with both, and maybe you know because they will. It, it doesn't necessarily you know create any complications, but um, it can create complications. And the only the only um, only interest they have is to be able to control militarily and for economic trade these uh, these areas and these regions for the interest of the West. So access to ports and re- so about the conversations and and the mechanisms. The state of Pan-Africanism, I think we have to judge it on the level of the ruling classes or the elites or what we refer to as the compradors in these countries, is not uh, looking at really people-centered and human rights of the of the people, um, and it's it's also very micro-nationalist in a sense. So they have. So there's really little, you know, in terms of like the African Union and whatnot. They're looking. They're not looking at how to eventualize, uh, eventually have real continental unity that, that eliminates the borders that were created by the West on the Berlin Conference. And so when they talk to intercontinental, so they, they they might have they have to talk about these interests of in terms of their in terms of micro-nationalism. What is the relationship between, what are the interests between Kenya and Somalia and mm-hmm. Somaliland and, you know, how do they protect their leadership, their own standing in these countries mm-hmm. as opposed to how do we provide human rights and then basic human rights for health care and, and start using our resources for us and not having them extracted by uh, by the Western powers. Right. Netha, it was a very complicated questions and never enough time to get into them, but we appreciate you coming on here and giving us the time that you have. That was Netfa Freeman coordinating on the coordinating committee of the Black Alliance for Peace. He's also co-producer and host of the radio show and podcast Voices with Vision. You can hear more from him there. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Still live on Radio Sputnik, still here in D.C. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Jordan's King Abdullah yesterday issued a royal decree that severely restricted the communications and movements of his half-brother, Prince Hamza bin Hussein, whom authorities accuse of having been involved in a coup attempt against the king a year ago. In a lengthy, scathing letter explaining the decree to the Jordanian public, the king excoriated his half-brother, calling him arrogant, erratic, and seditious. Hamza, the king wrote, had, quote, exhausted all opportunities to restore himself on the right path. 
unquote, and clung to delusion, believing himself to be the sole guardian of the family's legacy. This all started a year ago when Hamza, who at one time was the crown prince, along with Prince Sharif bin Hassan, a little-known member of the royal family, and Bassam Awadallah, the king's former top aide, were arrested and accused of trying to foment a coup. In the immediate aftermath, 20 other top aides were arrested, and Prince Sharif and Awadallah were convicted of sedition and incitement. We're joined by Adnan Alatiyat. He is a first-time guest. He's a political analyst and an attorney in practice in California. Adnan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, John, thank you for having me, and hello, Michelle, there. Well, l let me start saying that it is true that King Abdullah is popular here in the United States. But among his people, I would say that at least it's debatable. Really? Okay, let's start there then. Um, he is popular in the United States. Uh, Jordan and the U.S. have had a very close political and military and intelligence even relationship uh, for many years. This this goes back to uh, King Abdullah's father, King Hussein. Uh, he owned properties here uh, in the United States. He married Queen Noor, who was an American citizen. Um, we don't ever see news like this about Jordan in the United States. Uh, you know, the, the, the reporting that we see about Jordan in the United States is that everything's fine. Our relationship is fine. Everybody loves the king. Um, tell us about what the situation is like actually in Jordan. And are Jordanians taking a side on this in this fight? Right, right. Well, John, if we are discussing today the situation of Prince Hamza and all this chaos is going on in Jordan, that will answer your concerns and questions as well, because it's all related. Uh-huh. The between the king and his brother actually started by the prince going public and criticized the king. And it criticized the way the country was run, and it's still run. That was the beginning of the feud between the two brothers. So uh, let's, why don't we start from the beginning? Yes, that's the best place to start. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us how this began. Okay. Well, John, in 1999, during the last days and months of the late King Hussein's life, it seems that was a decision was made to make a change in the succession of the throne. As you remember, it was Prince Hassan uh, who was first in line for the succession. Yes. And after all, he was the crown prince at the time. But a decision was made to make those changes. Before that, King Hussein was... Um, constantly speaking favorably in favor of uh, Prince Hamza, who was 18 and, and 19 at the time. And uh, King Hussein insisted that Prince Hamza need to continue his education. Uh, he was in Georgetown at the time. So um, the king did not make the change right away in favor of Prince Hamza. But he used, you know, my well, call it a straw man, which is King Abdullah. An agreement was made at the time that 
King Abdullah will be named the crown prince for King Hussein. Yes. Then Prince Hamza will be the crown prince and the first in line. I'm sorry. No problem. And first in line for um, uh, King Abdullah. And Prince Hashim, which is the younger brother of Prince Hamza, will be first in line for after Prince Hamza. And the deal was made uh, to be as the king uh, recommended or indeed ordered it. So when after the the passage of King Hussein, King Abdullah took over the throne and Prince Hamza was the crown prince. Until 2004, King Abdullah breached that deal and stripped his brother from his title as crown prince right. and named his son, Prince Hussein, to be the crown prince. Right. So that is the succession issue. Okay. Now, after stripping Prince Hamza from his title, he stayed silent, actually. He never said a thing till 2016. The first time that Prince Hamza spoke publicly and criticized the king and the way he ran the country. But he did not harshly criticize him. Right. That did not happen till 2020, which is straightforward. Prince Hamza accused his brother of corruption. Is that what it was? It was corruption. Okay, so an accusation of corruption stings because there's actually evidence of corruption. So many Jordanians live in in poverty. And, and so many Jordanians of Palestinian extraction live in, in camps in poverty. So that had to sting. As well. Yes. But here's the thing, John. Um, protests and unrest started in Jordan uh, probably late to 2010. And people took to the streets in 2011, protesting the way the country was run. And accusing the king with the same accusation that Prince Hamza repeated in 2020. Corruption. Not just corruption. Actually, also, the country was going backward. If you follow the international reports for human rights and political freedoms, they designated Jordan, or Jordan was designated as semi-democratic country that went backward during King Abdullah time to be an authoritarian state. And all that uh, because the way the country was run by the king. Between 2010 and 2021, a hundred constitutional amendment was made. You talk about small country and a hundred constitutional amendments, all of which went to um, concentrate the powers in the hands of the king. So dissolve the separation of powers, um, you know, freedom of choices, election, 
all that went away in favor of the king powers. Well, let me ask you then, many of us thought that this fight between the king and, uh, and Prince Hamza was over a year ago when these arrests were made. Uh, Hamza was effectively silenced. He was placed under house arrest, but it was sort of an informal kind of house arrest. But then Hamza went on the internet last week and criticized the king again. Why do you think he did that? What was he hoping to accomplish? Well, John, actually, no, that's not true. Uh-huh. Hamza did not criticize the king last week. Okay. What happened, actually, and let me bring your attention to that. After a month of Ramadan, Muslims celebrate uh, Eid. Yes. And there's a morning prayer uh, in that Eid. It's a custom prayer brought uh, in the Islamic religion. So Prince Hamza tried to go to that prayer. And the mosque, actually, within the compound of the king, it's a large area, and there's uh, the castle of the Friends and the mosque about two miles away, but it's still within the compound. Mm -hmm. Now, in 2021 or 20, there's royal guards guarding the prince and preventing him from making communication with the outside, with the people. But when he tried to go to the prayers, he was prevented by the royal guard. Mm hmm. And here where the guards split it, some were defending the prince and some were mistreating him or indeed they wanted to arrest him. Right. To the point where those guards draw guns at each other. Oh, my God. And that pissed off the king because if the royal guards can be splitted between you know, supporters and against. What about the military? Right. That could happen in the military. And that's what triggered the king to be pissed off and came out with this statement. The statement itself, John, did not bring any news to Jordanians. Yeah, I, I actually read the article twice and I came to the same conclusion that none of this was new. And I was thinking maybe I was missing something. And I read it in different outlets. I read it at the Washington Post, and I read the original Associated Press report. Um, yeah. But Adnan, I think you're right. There, there was nothing that was clearly new here. So why? Only new. I'm sorry. Why, why, why raise it in the media? Why create yet another problem, political problem? Uh, John, like you said, nothing in news here. Uh, you were beating the same rhetoric you were saying in the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. The only new thing you brought in is the slander and defamation. You slandering your brother, describing him as uh, mentally ill. Right, right, he did. Unstable, a seditionist, and all those, you know, it's a slanderous terms, but nothing has to do with reality. Nothing has to do with politics. Nothing has to do with the case uh, you claiming against your brother. So the only purpose you're going after this time is, is slanderous terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? So uh, 
we, we, we go back to the incident of uh, eight, and you see that he's pissed off. He's not saying anything new, and it's not customary in Jordan to go to social media mm-hmm. or to the media to spread the slanderous claims. Right. That's not who who are Jordanians. We have a very strict culture, a respectful culture. Even during the feuds, we use. You know, we we remain respectful to each other. Yes. So what the king did, he violated the customs in Jordan. That's not how we deal with things. Well, yeah, that's another question that I have for you, because this really is not the Jordanian way of doing things. I've known Jordanians all my life, and this is just so crazy, so unusual, that, uh, that maybe that in and of itself is what makes it newsworthy. Even Queen Noor, uh, Prince Hamza's mother and the the widow of uh, King Hussein, she tweeted yesterday, and this was her whole tweet. She said, quote, some truly bizarre and stranger than fiction stuff circulating right now, unquote. But I was surprised that she did not come to her son's defense. What what should we take from that? What What is your analysis? Well, John, uh, you need to remember, um, Queen Noor is still maintaining her title as a queen. Oh, good point. And the other thing, she still maintained the respectful debate. And she relied on the people. Like, we do have a large opposition in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And they took the stand to defend the prince from the principles of justice, not a political feud or feud over the throne. But they defend him as a citizen, that he deserves his day in court. Yes. Which is he was never given. No. No, he's never seen in the inside of a court. Do you think that's even possible? And indeed... If you read the letter the king wrote or sent to his people, he did mention that the prince asked for his day in court, but he never mentioned or declared what was the decision, why he wasn't sent to court as Basim Awadallah and the Sharif. Mm-hmm. There are two people involved of what the king called sedition. Yes. Why he wasn't sent to court. Why he didn't have his day in court. That's actually my next question to you, because what the king has accused Prince Hamza of of doing um, sedition is in many cases a death penalty offense. He's he's accusing him of of, uh, launching a coup. He's accusing him of going to two foreign embassies. We don't know what embassies those are and asking for support in regime change, but there's not even been any discussion of formal charges or going to court. Why is that? Well, because there's no concrete charges to be charged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They say sedition and you use the term coup. And the king did use that term. Uh, can three people lead a coup or, you know. Right. Right. And it took place. 
It's impossible. And the other thing is, up till now, most of the army, uh, the police departments, uh, you know, all the military forces, is still loyalist to the king. Mm -hmm. They are loyal. So saying that three people, and for instance, Basim Awadallah is the most hated person in Jordan. <laughs> So uh, he's the last person on earth can, uh, you know, perform or, you know, take uh, a coup in Jordan. Who's going to follow him? Right. Nobody. Right. Nobody. And the Sharif, he's a known person. Nobody knows him in Jordan. No. He's unknown. No, nobody knows him. The only person is Prince Hamza. And there's no way that Prince Hamza will try a coup. He knows his limitation. But here's the thing, uh, John. Go back to 2015 and 16 and follow the interviews of King Abdullah. He was also slanderous against Jordanian tribes. Oh. Described them as dinosaurs, a force to prevent uh, reform in Jordan. A force that taking the country backward. Oh boy! True, indeed. You know, tribes in Jordan—they are pro-American, mm -hmm. pro-education, pro-pro-pro-pro. So uh, his his claims was slanderous. At the same time, Prince Hamza was visiting those tribes, uh, participating in their uh, you know happy occasions as much as sad occasions like this and. Yeah, he he was involved. So people compared him to the king. This guy is a slanderous, and this guy is respectful, who visit and show respect to the tribes and the people of Jordan. Mm -hmm. That distinguished and more favorable views was given to Prince Hamza versus King Abdullah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you very much, Adnan Alatiat, for that, uh, that analysis. We were very happy to have you on the show. Adnan is a political analyst and an attorney in practice in the state of California. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We have a lot more coming up. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into a little bit more detail now about something we've talked about on this show a couple times now, which is this mm -hmm. rash of mysterious hepatitis infections in children. There have been, in the last few months, more than 100 children in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe sickened by hepatitis, at least 26 of them have gotten liver transplants and at least six children have died from these Crazy. illnesses and health professionals, as far as I can see, just remain totally baffled. Uh, they have ruled out any of the usual viruses that cause, you know, what are termed hepatitis A, B, C, D and E. Oh, Three. I didn't even know there was an. Yeah, it's sort of a new one wow. <laughs> uh, or a new designation. 
three quarters of the children, uh, apparently, who have this hepatitis are under five and so haven't gotten COVID vaccinations. So it doesn't seem to be linked to that. Uh, there was a possibility it was linked to dog exposure, but that seems to have been ruled out. They are still looking at COVID. They're looking at another common childhood virus, but no cause really seems clear. And so joining us to get into this mystery and what we know and what we don't is Bill Honigman. He's a retired emergency physician and he's California State Coordinator and Healthcare Issue Team Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. Dr. Honigman, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Michelle and John. Great to be with you. So glad to have you back. So uh, what do you know about what's going on? Where where are researchers so far in this mystery? And also, I guess, how how significant is it? You know, it's 400 children in three countries. It doesn't really sound like a lot. Uh, but, you know, certainly uh, medical professionals are taking notice. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, it's a terrific uh, thing to have on uh, everyone's radar. I mean, I'm, you know, certainly not an infectious disease expert, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, epidemiologist or um, or a public health uh, expert for that matter. I'm, I'm just a retired emergency room physician. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so, so my area of interest is mainly in seeing people who fall through the cracks in our healthcare system mm -hmm. uh, end up in the emergency room. But uh, you have to wonder when you see a trend of any kind uh, in public health. So, you know, that sounds like a significant trend. And as you said, um, this is happening in the era of COVID. Uh, and you, you very, I think, uh, 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 you know, adroitly point to, um, you know, could it be the vaccine, for example? No uh, large uh, proportion of these children uh, have yet to be vaccinated even. So then you have to wonder, okay, could it be COVID? You know, yes, uh, that seems even more likely to me, you know, once again, because these are in a cohort of the population that's not yet protected by the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so because they haven't been vaccinated in, in young children, uh, and that is worldwide. It's not yet recommended for uh, children five and under. So, um, so I think it's, it is wise to be looking at this, and especially as, uh, as possibly an effect of COVID. And, you know, do we have good data? Uh, so this is where it gets more into my area of interest is in, you know, what countries have are 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 um, doing a good job at uh, effective collection of data. United States is is extremely poor in that regard. In fact, that's probably why, uh, to a great extent, we are a leader in COVID deaths uh, in you know worldwide uh, is because of our poor collection of data. Not to mention you know um, inequities in, in treatment. Mm -hmm. In in application of the vaccine itself, you know, et cetera. So uh, so yeah, especially in in those higher income countries in the global north compared to the global south, um, and in universal healthcare countries, what are they seeing as trends in in this particular uh, disease uh, process? I mean, it also raises the possibility that. Uh, we don't really understand how I mean, who knows what causes this. Right. So I don't we there is no 
it, it, we don't know. But if it is COVID, since that is sort of the new thing, it's a new virus that lots of people have gotten, it makes me wonder if we don't really understand COVID in children, if maybe it behaves differently than it does in adults. And I, I wonder if that's possible, because also, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, like the great bright spot throughout was that COVID infections in children tended to be mild. Right. It's mostly the people who got seriously ill and the people who died were old. They had uh, uh, comorbidities, et cetera. And, I, you know, throughout the pandemic, it's been like, oh, what a relief, at least that this isn't something that is really virulent among children. But it does make me wonder if it's possible uh, that, you know, having an, an initial infection that's really mild hides something that is latent uh, that we aren't necessarily seeing in the adult population. Could that even be possible? Oh, absolutely possible. So, you know, so you hear about things that uh, especially affect children, um, this uh, myocarditis uh, problem. Mm -hmm. that, uh, um, um, it's a systemic inflammatory condition affecting children as well. Um, you know, but even going back before uh, COVID, uh, things like the uh, Epstein-Barr virus, which, of mm -hmm. course, um, is responsible for mononucleosis, uh, the kissing disease. Why do they call it that? Because it was so prevalent in adolescence, mm -hmm. right? So, and that could cause that condition called chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm -hmm. Again, uh, very common in young people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so there are uh, uh, diseases and viruses that uh, particularly strike uh, young people um, that that we have to stay aware of. It's a great question to ask mm -hmm. those infectious disease uh, specialists of pediatrics. Mm -hmm. And MS, right? And this is sort of a fascinating thing. These these relatively mild viruses that then you later on find out are seem to be, you know, not not things that uh, will always lead to uh, the development of these later syndromes, but seem to be prerequisites for them, which is fascinating. Uh, well, I wonder, you know, what what would your advice be to parents right now? What should what should what symptoms should they be attuned to so that if this is something that is affecting their child, they can know sooner rather than later? So, my advice to parents is basically the same as to everyone else. Mm -hmm. In this era of COVID, you know, we we need to, um, uh, you know, not ignore the elephant in the room, right, um, which is that we have to stay vigilant for the public health crisis that's in front of us. Uh, that is is to get vaccinated and get your child vaccinated, your young child, especially as soon as that becomes available, get them vaccinated, stay masked in, in closed public uh, spaces. And um, and I would add to that, fight for universal health care like Medicare yeah. for All. Mm -hmm. Seriously. That eliminates the, the commercial intermediaries that are creating barriers. They're stealing resources away from understanding, collecting good data and understanding as well as fighting, you know, public health scourges like this. We need better data. We need all the resources available. We don't have that in this country, which is why we're we're failing so miserably. Ooh. In, in this regard, I also have an update on this. Apparently, uh, yesterday there was an update to the numbers of children suffering from this mysterious hepatitis. It's 621 cases in 34 countries, but half of them come from the U.S. and the U.K. 
And this is also interesting because we're, of course, not the only countries that are uh, that are collecting data. And so it does seem like it's certainly right now the way that the data is is presenting would make it something environmental seem to be a, a problem because, you know, we know Israel has been collecting really good data throughout this pandemic. Right. Like there are lots of other countries that that do a good job of collecting data, as you've said. So why this seems to be so focused in the U.S. and the U.K. is another, I mean, very interesting question. Uh, Dr. Honigman, you know, uh, on the topic of these um, intermediaries and our for-profit healthcare system, Politico in a story today is warning about what they call a healthcare time bomb. So these huge subsidies for insurance companies that uh, Joe Biden signed into law a year ago are about to expire. And I call them subsidies for insurance companies because they are, you know, they're just going to insurance companies. But it made healthcare premiums for Americans cheaper and it helped lots of Americans actually get insurance coverage. They are going to expire. The premiums are going to increase. People might, you know, not be able to afford health insurance and and fall into being uncovered again. And so this story, you know, talks about the wheeling and dealing that's going on right now to get who but Joe Manchin to sign on to a budget reconcilia- reconciliation package that would renew these subsidies. And so, Bill, on one hand, you know, it, it would be terrible to see more Americans lose health care coverage, right, because they can't pay these outrageous premiums. On the other, it's just it's just more money going to insurance companies, right? So they either get it directly from Americans when we pay for our services and we pay our co-pays, or they get it indirectly through our government. And it's a terrible system. It seems like a short-term answer is just to renew these subsidies. I wonder if you think there's another short-term solution for for this fall. Yeah, well, terrific question. Mm. And it reminds me of the... The um, the big bank bailout <laughs> that we did in 2008, mm-hmm. financial crisis, you know, so it's like we we were going to lose if we didn't bail them out or if we did bail them out. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it really is a double jeopardy situation here and that the, the only way to lower payments in the short term, uh, you know, made that that we make uh to uh as insurance purchasers or taxpayers is to pay more to the commercial middlemen who are making more by continually raising prices in the long term mm-hmm. you know so and what's that for that's for their pr- that doesn't do anything to provide more health care mm-hmm. so you know that's that's uh, supposedly their intended um, uh, objective is to provide health care. So that's, that's just craziness. And uh, so that's why we need to eliminate that commercial middleman that, that's uh, set up that uh, situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought this was sort of a funny quote from the piece. They're, they're talking to, of course, a, a health policy coordinator from the Center for American Progress who says this was a major accomplishment, but when fall comes around, people are going to be looking at higher premiums and that's what will be salient, not the fact that Congress lowered premiums. Well, yeah, because you only lowered them temporarily. <laughs> you know, it's like stop wanting to get credit for doing something in the short term and then being mad that people say, OK, yeah, but that doesn't affect me now. I'm not going to remember the one time one time you expanded the child tax credit and now it's gone. I just thought that was funny, Bill. 
It's, it is funny. It's ironic. I mean, Joe Manchin and his Republican allies basically taking victory laps um, when they're handing out relief checks that, that they themselves voted against. You know, the bottom line is that there's still far too many politicians in Washington, D.C., as we know, and state houses all across the country are willing to represent commercial interests over those of the people that you supposedly represent. And until we replace them with a filibuster and veto-proof majority of commercial free champions, you know, who are advocating for what the people really need, like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal, then we're just going to be fighting them just to stay alive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that that's, in essence, what has to be done. Mm -hmm. That was Dr. Bill Honigman. He's a retired emergency room physician. He's also California State Coordinator and Healthcare Issue Team Coordinator for Progressive Democrats of America. Bill, always great to talk to you. Thank you, Michelle. Um, and folks can join us at, at PDA every Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern. We have uh, weekly online town hall meetings, and you can hear from uh, champions on all of these issues at those meetings. And uh, the information is at our website, as you said, pdamerica.org. Thank you so much, Bill. Really appreciate it. Speaking of, John, uh, centrist centrist think tanks. Yes. I don't know if this caught your eye. It's Listen, this is like not the most important thing in the world, but I thought it was apropos, right? Mm. Uh, there's an opinion piece in The Hill this morning called Democrats Must Reach Across the Diploma Divide, which is like uh, a kind of condescending headline, but that whatever. Is, that is condescending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it's talking about how, hey, you know, you're, you're losing your base because you're not doing things for working people, okay, maybe we can get past mm -hmm. the condescending headline. Uh, and it starts off by saying Democrats lost the white working class decades ago, and now they're seeing erosion in their support among Hispanic and even black voters without college degrees, which is true. We've, mm -hmm. we've been watching mm -hmm. that trend. It's a mortifying turn of events for a party that historically has defined its mission as standing up for working families. OK, yeah. All right. Well, what are you going to do? What are you proposing here? Mm -hmm. And so they're saying this is a threat to the party's ability to enlarge its uh, majority, to stay in government. Um, <laughs> What does this turn out to be? It's uh, it's written by, let me go down here, written by a president and founder of the Progressive Policy Institute, which is not progressive. Not progressive. And it's all about how you shouldn't be whining for student loan forgiveness. Oh, so my God. It's like going God. and saying, hey, working, working people don't care about student loan forgiveness. This is just giving money to, to rich people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, oh one. Oh, my God. That is that is ridiculous. It doesn't like when you're talking about, you know, we're talking about loan forgiveness for high income earners. Sure. But like they're high income earners who are still uh, lashed to this uh, millstone for the rest of their lives, basically, you know, because you cannot the, the the even even if you are making a lot of money, the interest on your loan is still huge and you end up paying back much more than the original premium ever, what the principal ever was. So again, it is just whatever your income level is, it's just a slow sort of siphoning off your money until it's eventually wiped away clean. Yes. But I just thought it's hilarious that this sort of centrist, centrist think tank sneaking into the pages of, of the Hill to talk about how Democrats actually Awful. should be appealing to, to working class voters by not giving something to other voters. Awful. Oh, he has a line like, quote unquote, free college, Ugh. another progressive hobby horse. Yeah. Ridiculous. I wanted to say, too, that uh, there's been a death of note 
uh, today. This is from the the uh, New York Post. Uh, Logan Long, who is a prolific a porn star, porn star mm-hmm. died this morning at the age of 34 of pneumonia. I read that. He's and been battling pneumonia. Yeah. Just pneumonia. Not AIDS. Yeah. Just pneumonia. Just pneumonia. I mean, maybe COVID related, but it didn't say Could that. Be, I saw that story. I thought I, it was so strange. I yeah. really went through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a quote in here. Th- this guy was prolific. He was, he's only been a porn star for six years. He, mm-hmm. he had owned a restaurant, mm-hmm. decided that was boring, wanted to do something exciting and something that fit into his lifestyle, he said. So he became a porn star. Sure. In just six years, he's been in 1,000 porn movies. Probably tired himself out. You get I worn down and you get, you get yeah. uh, pneumonia. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a, a quote here from Twitter from one of his coworkers. Yes, Did you see yes, it? yes. I can't I saw say that her quote. name no, because that was, we're a family uh, radio That was the show. thing that jumped out in the, um, the article to me. Incredible. Yeah. I won't say her name, but she tweeted, I've watched the video of Logan Long peeing on me five times today. I am so effing sad. He was such a great guy. Wow. That's that's really respect right there. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm sad. sad, sad. I, I saw that just because like a young person dying of pneumonia it's is very, so very unusual. unusual. But it does happen. People do die of pneumonia still. You they die of like, pneumonia. They die of the flu. You know, these are things that that are surprising and they're mysteries to us but you're right it does happen in all seriousness you know, there was another death too oh. uh the composer uh vangelis papathanasiou who is like a god in greece but mm-hmm. he's known in the west as vangelis um which i always hated just because it's a mispronunciation of his first name uh he was an academy award-winning composer he he wrote the uh he wrote the uh, theme song to uh chariots of fire mm. that everybody knows okay, yeah he won the oscar for that uh, he wrote the the whole soundtrack to the movie. He wrote the soundtrack to the movie Blade Runner, which is still very, very popular. Um, he's actually known for, for 60 movie soundtracks. He was 79 years old, died of cancer yesterday in Athens. Mm-hmm. It's banner headlines on all the, the Greek newspapers today. At the risk of being tasteless, I will introduce the next idea with this. Guess who else is at death's door? Uh-oh. It's Joe that? Biden's approval ratings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't you get a right chance that. to mention that. Uh, lowest point of his presidency yeah. in May. Uh, 30, only 39% of U.S. adults approve of Biden's performance as president. This yes. is according to an AP and NORC Center for Public Research poll. Uh, only two in 10 adults say the U.S. is heading in the right direction or the economy is good. I mean, why? Yeah, of course, that seems the economy, certainly like that's not even that's not really even opinion. No, um, down from down from three and 10 a month earlier. So not, not a precipitous drop, really. Uh, but it may be notable that these drops were concentrated among Democrats with only 33 yes. percent of Democrats saying the party is headed in the right direction, down from 49% in April. And so, only 10% believe strongly that Biden has been a good president. So that's, I wonder what triggered that. And I wonder also if it is possibly tied to, we, we spoke yesterday about the $40 billion for Ukraine that passed the Senate, a bill that didn't, Almost sort of a mirror image mm-hmm. was a forty-eight billion dollar aid package mm-hmm. for restaurants and other small businesses. Uh, the vote was four, fifty-two to forty-three. 
the one of the uh, sponsors of the bill is not, you know, doesn't sound very optimistic about getting it together for another shot. Uh, it was going to provide $48 billion to restaurants, gyms, and other small businesses that were hit particularly hard by COVID. Uh, it would have provided a relief fund. Uh, yeah, the, but oh, I see it was $2 billion for gyms, $2 billion for live event operators, $2 billion for bus and ferry operators. So mm. a bunch of like, you know, the events uh, and gatherings, businesses, and then kind of the businesses that are tangential to them. Yes. But we don't have any money for that. You know, this has to lead to some serious discussion about Joe Biden just sort of uh, walking off into the sunset come Mm -hmm. the 2024 election. And we've said how many times on the show that the Democrats really don't have a deep bench. They have a lot of people who want to be president, but they're not necessarily appealing to voters. Uh, But you can't win a presidential election with a 39 percent approval rating. This is lower than Jimmy Carter's. 41% 41% approval rating in 1980, mm-hmm. in which Carter lost, what, 44 states. So this, you know, the Democrats are going to have to have some very tough discussions yeah. internally. And, you know, Politico had a story yesterday about um, supposed sort of internal whispers about Biden not running. That's what the headline made it look like. And then when you actually read the story, it was mostly people going, oh, yeah, no, he's going to run. For sure. Right. I'm pretty sure he's going to run. He's he, going to run. He and, told Obama two weeks ago that he was running. Yeah. So, you know, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Politico, for dragging me into the story that promised salaciousness <laughs> and intrigue and then let me down. Oh, and another news. I mean, a big headline, probably important. Can I offer any analysis on it? No. But Sri Lanka has actually yeah. defaulted on its debt. Yeah. Sri Lanka, of course, have been in crisis for it feels like months now. Um, and with its economy still suffering because you yes. know, tourism is still pretty depressed. And who can afford to go anywhere now? Yeah. Because airfares are so expensive. Yeah, they're um, crazy. They're charging now uh, fuel surcharges. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Hey, um, there was something else, too. We, we talked about monkeypox yesterday. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, very briefly made light of it. It's not something to laugh about. It's no. a serious thing. But we said, look, there's only one. Uh, there's only one uh, uh, person in America, in Massachusetts, this guy, he just come back from Canada. He has monkeypox. Well, now New York City has announced its first monkeypox uh, case. Mm. So maybe this is something we should be paying a little bit closer attention to. Yeah. Well, you know? we were on top of it, John. Yes, we were. John, you know what? We're going to take a break and come back with news of the weird. And I've yes. got a story for you. Excellent. So we can just, start with it. Just wait. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. Uh, we're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird, where we tell you about some of the more offbeat stories in the news over the past week. I was going to start with North Carolina, but Michelle's got a story. I sure do. I mean, I don't have to go first, but no, I might want you well. To. well, let me tell you then. Uh, I'll just read you the headline that pretty much says it all. Actor who played Red Power Ranger among 18 charged with COVID relief fraud. You know, I thought the Red Power Ranger was already in prison for murder. Didn't he 
Didn't he kidnap those two old people on their yacht? Austin St. John? No. No, this was an earlier Red Power Ranger. I think they probably, the Red Power Ranger isn't necessarily a person. Right. It's a vibe. Right, right, right. And it passes right. through individuals. No, I'll but, tell you, yeah, the red people. one's bad. Stay away from the Red Power Ranger. Apparently, I'm sorry, he's, No, just he's either going to murder you or he's going to engage in, uh, engage in fraud. So wow. they're accused of, uh, allegedly, right? Uh, they're accused of taking part in a scheme to defraud the Paycheck Protection Program. Oh, uh, it says they... Th- he was part of a plan to create businesses to obtain funding. So they fabricated applications. They fabricated documentation. They misrepresented the nature of the business and how much money they needed for payroll. And they defrauded the plan of uh, at least three and a half million dollars. Oh, jeez. If they're fa- they face up to 20 years in prison if convicted. That's wow. a long time. Yeah. Wow. But as far as I know, only one of them played a Power Ranger. Unbelievable. These yeah. people. I thought that was good. Well, North Carolina regulators uh, did something that was very sensible this week. They reversed a decision that they had made earlier. They, you know what? Let me rephrase that. Okay. It wasn't the North Carolina regulators. It was a federal judge overseeing the regulators. So North Carolina regulators, it turns out, were wrong to reject a beer label that featured the silhouette of a naked man hmm. standing next to a campfire. This is according to a federal judge in Charlotte. The owners of Maryland-based Flying Dog Brewery, which makes delicious beer, I'll tell you, um, argued that the North Carolina Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission violated their First Amendment rights by rejecting the label for its freezing season winter ale. Right? The commission um, had said that the label was in bad taste. Okay. But they later allowed the beer to be sold. Flying Dog went ahead with the lawsuit anyway, mm-hmm. hoping to get the regulation struck down. Well, a U.S. District Court judge ruled in favor of the brewery last week, finding that the regulation was vague and overbroad. It violated the free speech rights of Flying Dog and other uh, brewers. The ruling requires now North Carolina to remove the current regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Flying Dog is also the maker of the beer Raging Bitch. Um, I don't think you're allowed to say that on the radio. I oh think no, we I have think to you, dump it. I think you that's, can. Oh, do we? Well, uh, that's I, all right. Because it's, it's out there on the shelves in the, yeah, in the yeah, giant yeah. Safeway. Um, the state of Michigan sued them over the name of the beer. Mm-hmm. And the brewery won that case as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know. I think, I think having a speech. state board decide what's in poor taste or not does seem overly broad you know like sure don't have to be pornography but like poor taste a taste is subjective as much as i think you know mine is objectively the best i acknowledge it is subjective hey i know there's more news of the weird here but i also have uh just breaking breaking news from the sussman trial oh not really that exciting breaking news it's just uh robbie mook has made an appearance clinton campaign uh manager robbie mook oh my gosh where's the uh the story i just opened here we go uh, he's just gone on and told jurors he did not uh, authorize or instruct Michael Sussman to take information. Oh, to the he's FBI. just going to leave him out to fly in the wind. Yeah. He, so he he's uh, addressed jurors in this trial for Michael Sussman. He was called called as a witness by Sussman's defense, of course. 
And Mook said no, and he would have opposed taking the allegations to the FBI because because the campaign had no faith in the bureau after James Comey blasted uh, Clinton over her server, blah, blah, blah. You know what? All these people deserve each other. Yeah. They do. Yeah. They're yeah. all bums. Yeah. Um, he, Mook also said going to the FBI doesn't seem like a very effective way to get that information out to the public. We do that through the media, <gasps> which is an interesting quote. I'm shocked that somebody would actually vocalize that. Mm -hmm. Well, so there you go. Mook Mook pops up. I just had to squeeze that in. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, well, here's a story about bugs. Oh, right. So bugs. I do too. Some of them. Some of them. A team of scientists led by parasitologist. I didn't even know that was a a thing. Robert Pullen scoured studies in eight journals published between 2000 and 2020, around 2,900 new species were discovered during that period, with 200 in 2007 alone. However, of the 596 species named after eminent scientists, only 111, that's 19%, were named after women. Yeah, that's according to the University of uh, Otago in New Zealand. And of 71 scientists honored in the Latin names of two or more species, only eight were women. Mm-hmm. Eight scientists who had lent their names to six or more species, all men. Mm-hmm. So he says, quote, we found a consistent gender bias among species named after eminent scientists with male scientists being immortalized disproportionately more frequently than female scientists. Uh, it said that the gender bias had shown, quote, no evidence of improving over time over the last two decades. And they also said that there was a, a problem with etymological nepotism and cronyism in the naming of Helminths. Helminths, is a Helminth a kind of bug? Yeah, it's a kind of bug. Okay. Like, okay, all the bugs are just named after this scientist's kids. And that's not fair. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And they also <laughs> said that they need to get away from um, naming bugs after celebrities because oftentimes the celebrities fall out of favor and then science is stuck with the name. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to exercise my prerogative as a woman here and just not care that much. <laughs> so kids, okay. Be cool. You know, whatever. That, all right. Tisk, tisk, a gentle tisk, tisk on that one. You know, there was a, I, I read something recently about Gary Larson, the creator of The Far Side, who I think is a genius. And um, scientists named a cockroach after him. And they did it, they did it because they love The Far Side. Yeah. And he wrote them back a letter that was so funny and so appreciative that there is now a cockroach named like. Gary uh, Larsensis or exactly, something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like Gary Larsensis. Um and I thought, you know what? That is exactly the attitude mm-hmm. that that we should all have. You know, I know we're going to end on a, a, another animal story. I haven't yeah. read the whole thing. I just saw the first line. But speaking of animals, bear season. Yes. It's bear season in the U.S. stock market, yeah. apparently. Uh, they, uh, According to the New York Times, they have crossed a grim threshold after yes. a long slide. They slid, the S&P 500 slid into bear market territory for the first time since early in the pandemic. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see how long it stays there. Uh, it, it, the term, of course, means it's a 20 percent decline from a recent peak. The peak That's they're right. talking about now is since January 3rd. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe this has to do with why only 33 percent of Democrats approve of Joe Biden. I'm surprised. That's a, 
a lower percentage than the average. It's crazy. It's surprising to Which me. Which would tell me then that he's got he still has pretty Unless, good support you know, from independents. Yeah, or Republicans are really happy he hasn't passed any of his big uh, social maybe, spending maybe that's bills, it too. or they're glad he you know gave more money to cops or something. Yeah, that could be it too. Yeah. Well, here's another strange. This is an animal story, like you said a mm-hmm. second ago. Um, there was a there was a cat. Uh, that has been missing for months, right? This cat was found in a in a shipping container on an offshore oil platform and uh, flown back by helicopter to the Scottish mainland uh, today. Uh, they subsequently checked his microchip and um, and they found that this cat is named Dexter. It says it's also emerged that he had been living as a stray around Peterhead Prison in Aberdeenshire in recent years. Dexter had even earned the nickname One-Eyed Joe from the prison staff who kept him fed and watered. Amy Finley, an animal rescue officer at the SPCA, admitted that she has no idea how this cat ended up in the shipping container oh. that went to the uh, to the offshore oil platform. Mm. She said, we're so glad that he was well looked after for the time he was missing, but we're even more delighted to be able to reunite him with his original owner, thanks to the microchip being up to date. Aww. So what it is. That's beautiful. You know, the craziest part of this is that he's been missing for five years. I know. I love so that he story. kind of walked away from home and um, arrived at the prison and became the prison cat. And then arrived on the oil platform and became the oil platform cat. And now he's back home again. Do you want to hear more from Robbie Mook? I do. All right. So here's another story about his testimony. Uh, apparently, so this this information, right, that this data that supposedly uh, showed c- uh, computer communications between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank. Yes. Which it wasn't what it, they thought it might be. Right. Um, but uh, Robbie Mook is talking about ha- discussing the matter with Hillary Clinton, uh, saying, hey, we have this. We want to share it with a reporter. So he said we wouldn't give it to the FBI. We didn't trust the FBI. We give it to the media. So Mook is recounting discussions to give it to the reporter. He also said, no, of course, we hadn't verified the accuracy of any of this data. That was the whole point of giving it to a reporter so they could run it down further, he says, which, you know, does sort of kick the ball squarely into the um <laughs> over the net to mix my sports metaphors <laughs> into the uh, media's court and the media was sort of do- doing all their work kind of in public and never really yes. finishing the, these equations. Yeah. At the same time, it just sounds to me like he's he's just walking away from Sussman. Yeah. He said a, re- a reporter could vet the information, then decide to print it. And yeah, it does sound like that. I mean, they are saying very clearly we didn't tell. Well, I'm walking away from I mean, Sussman has said I wasn't Sussman said I wasn't acting on behalf of a client. So I think it would be it would be undercutting his position if they said, oh, yeah, actually, we told him to do it. You know? Yeah. 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 You're right. You're so, right. Yes. Uh, there there. He's up there talking about how how Sussman came to on his behalf or not on on the campaign's behalf uh, approach the FBI. Man, I'll tell you, here we are all these years. All these after years the election, later. And we're still arguing this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, that makes me think, too, what about the statute of limitations? 
If this was in 2016, I guess they must have charged Sussman just before the statute of limitations. I don't know what expired. the statute of limitations is for something for, for, for lying to the FBI. Yeah, five years. Yeah. Yeah. Slid it in under the wire. Yeah, they just got it. Yeah, so I have a feeling uh, the the testimony in this trial could be pretty interesting, actually. I think so. I, was, I guess I wasn't expecting Robbie Mook to, to jump, you know, to pop up. But maybe I should have been. Maybe if I had thought about it for a second. Oh, man, I almost forgot to talk about the giant new sinkhole. And now oh, we don't really have yes. time. But, you know, for the 10-second the recap... Big old sinkhole in China yeah. that has a secret forest inside it yes. that might have neat bugs that we've never seen before. Crazy. That's a cool way to end a Friday, right? I think so. I hope all of you see brand new bugs over the weekend. We're going to leave it here. I want to say thanks to all of our guests and to our engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thank you for listening. We'll see you on Monday. 